This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to fantastic podcast sponsorship opportunities, all with a click of a button. I found this ad opportunity on the platform, sent a quick pitch, and was all set in no time. With Podcorn, there's no middleman so that you can save time and money. They say time is money, so you're really saving money twice. Not bad. On Podcorn, you can set your own rates and collaborate with brands directly. I've heard again and again that you can't make any money in podcasting, but Podcorn is changing that for me and hopefully for you too. Join today at podcorn.com. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Nathan Stoltzfus. He's the Dorothy and Jonathan Rintels Professor of Holocaust Studies in the Arts and Sciences and Professor of History at Florida State University. He's also the author of Hitler's Compromises, Coercion and Consensus in Nazi Germany. We started this season with a conversation on how we can move from passive preoccupation with politics into real action and went through various ways on how citizens can build political power and work with other people to influence the government. We've covered everything from the endurance of the Tea Party to the role of the Supreme Court in entrenching the power of conservatives, and we thought we should include a look at fascism. This episode is about how Hitler built a mass movement for himself and the Nazi party. We discussed the role of legitimacy, popularity, and ideology in building, maintaining, and exerting political power. Fascism is so important for the 20th century because before then, dictators, autocrats had appealed usually to family legacy, But since the French Revolution, at least, the people expected to have a say in politics. This is why uh, Hitler is modern in that very important aspect that he wanted to include the people and be representing himself as presenting the will of the people. And this was not so important in previous autocracies. In fact, we can say that Hitler was one of the pioneers of the kinds of popular autocracies we see today in the 21st century. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. It's good to be here. Thank you, Mila. So we are interested in how groups or movements acquire political power. And in your book, Hitler's Compromises, you analyzed how Hitler and the Nazi party obtained and maintained political power. One of the things that you discuss is that it was very important for Hitler to gain power through legal means, through elections. Why was that? Well, the first one is the common one about political legitimacy. Hitler apparently cared about what Hannah Arendt has called real authority. That is, he didn't want to just force his way onto his own race, his German people. He wanted to convince them that uh, he had a better way, that his traditions 
this way of thinking was the way that they should think and that it would give them what they wanted uh, more than their Christianized traditions did. This is why fascism is so important for the 20th century, because before then, dictators, autocrats had appealed usually to family legacy. They had inherited their authority, or maybe God had appointed them divine monarchs. But since the French Revolution, at least, the people expected to have a say in politics. This is why uh, Hitler is modern in that very important aspect that uh, he wanted to include the people and be representing himself as presenting the will of the people. And this was not so important in previous autocracies. In fact, we can say that Hitler was one of the pioneers of the kinds of popular autocracies we see today in the 21st century. Yeah, I totally get the legitimacy part. I think what was really striking about what you wrote in the book is that he felt so strongly that without popular support, he could not persuade people to come along with his radical vision and really moving standards of normative behavior. There was actually dissent and protest against Hitler, which I think is probably little known. And he used the protests as guideposts for himself to see how he can push the envelope. And so what I found most instructive is the example with euthanasia. When we think about Hitler today, we don't know that people knew that there was euthanasia going on and didn't like it. What were the protests at that time? And in which way did he try to contain the protests and also continue to be popular? For Hitler, what is important is belief. He says that even those people who believe something false are superior to those who don't believe anything and who are uh, confused. Democracy was just a swamp of confusion, of, of competition. So uh, the problem with that form of knowing, rather than enlightenment forms of acknowledging facts, of acknowledging reason, of evidence, Hitler wants to substitute belief, and that's why aesthetics are so important for fascism, the appearance of belief, the appearance of consensus. That's part of why protests were so threatening, because uh, Hitler's power rested on his image. Hitler orchestrated his appearances so that he could play his role of Fuhrer and that uh, people would believe in him. One of the problems of protest was that it showed dissent openly. It is one of the aspects of protest that is actually uh, more important than the free press in that it can be something that anybody can see, that it can represent images on the street about norms. Hitler was interested in being a norm entrepreneur. He wanted to actually change the norms fundamentally uh, to match Nazi thinking, national socialist attitudes and behaviors. 
Well, the norms that he wanted to change were so radical, and he knew this. And I think that is something that I didn't fully understand, that he knew that he had to proceed slowly in order to get people under his umbrella and believe these things. For example, the idea of useless eaters. What is a useless eater, the way that the Nazis defined it, and what was the plan with them? That's a very good question, since it brings us away from race. I did want to say first, though, you mentioned quite right that Hitler realized he had to start with where the people were and like in dance instructor, bring them across the floor to where he wanted them to be so solidly that they would just pass on National Socialism, you know, like the air that they breathe is what Goebbels said in 1935, that uh, this would become their value system and, and no one would have to scold you if you weren't acting like a Nazi. You would do it even in your closet if you just internalize it. Now, the question about useless eaters is, is really a, a troublesome one because it does show the Nazis deviating strictly from the racial distinction of who is good and who is bad. Of course, it also brings up a political dimension. Who's going to decide who's useless? There are valuable lives and there are lives that in Nazi propaganda, people would be glad to be rid of. These were simply people who weren't paying their way. It's a simple economic equation. This was the main point of Nazi propaganda to try to sell euthanasia. Himmler thought that the propaganda could be so effective that within years, the German people would accept openly euthanasia of those the Nazis considered incorrigible or, or simply uh, incurable. But Hitler disagreed with that, and he waited until the war when, as he said, you know, uh, resistance will be more difficult because of patriotism, because the uh, the churches he mentioned specifically, I think he uh, saw them as nationalistic, as, as certainly the leaders were almost to a, a person, a man, actually, at the top or in any level. And the effectiveness of Gallen, when he stood up in his pulpit in early August of 1941 and uh, spoke out against this, was, I think, primarily when he said, none of us knows the line here. There's a program here where people are getting killed. It seems to be those who are economically unfeasible in the uh, regime's eyes. And who's to say that any of us won't be judged that way? It could even be that people who get their legs shot off at the front and have sacrificed everything will now be euthanized because they're not paying their way now. So can you explain who Galen is for the audience and why he had, in fact, so much clout in terms of communicating with the public in Germany? Well, Bishop Galen is certainly uh, perhaps one of the most interesting figures in the Third Reich. He was, first of all, a conservative, an aristocratic uh, nationalist who was attracted to National Socialism and Hitler. Like every German church leader I can think of initially, some of them uh, peeled away more quickly, but others like Galen continued to make league with the Nazis 
on the basis where their programs intersected. And that was, in the biggest way, nationalism. So there was this common strand that they were working toward. Hitler would have certainly come down very hard against any kind of dissent like Gollum was practicing. He actually decided that Gollum should not be hanged or executed or even punished for speaking out against euthanasia. Rather, he issued a halt decree, uh, halting it for the moment in the way it was happening. And uh, I think he planned to turn Gollum because uh, it wasn't until the next month in September of 1941, it was, wasn't more than a month before Gollum came out speaking on behalf of the war, telling Catholic young men, when you go out and fight Bolshevism and you die, you die the death of a martyr and you'll be received in heaven like a martyr. And uh, what more can a dictator want, even one who wants to uh, eventually overthrow Christianity, than to harness the religiosity, the passion, the emotion of Christianity and its principles of martyrdom and self-sacrifice. This is what Hitler was all about. Hitler was more successful in part, if not main part, because he was more interested in appealing to everyone in building this mass movement. This is the key to fascist politics. This is the key to how uh, Hitler pioneered. Now, the mass movement could be built in any way. Deception was really Hitler's favorite tactic, pulling the rug out from people trying to put something under there before they noticed and they liked it just as much. But uh, this was something that the churches, I guess, saw as a revival of uh, a malaise that people needed to get out of, that they needed a resurrection. This is what Hitler kept promising, a resurrection, the wind of change that would sweep Germany as he came to power. Right. So on the euthanasia protest, actually, some of them were quite successful. For example... In Grafenegg, it closed because yeah. the people who lived there were like, the crematorium is going. We know those people are dying in there. The way that we popularly think about it is that people didn't know, but they did know and they complained about it. People were depressed about it. And in the beginning, the mass murders were basically shooting people, and it was really bad for soldier morale. And so they decided, oh, we can't do this because this destroys people. We have to do it in a different way. Hitler understood how important it is for him to maintain his mass movement. How did Hitler finesse this? Because he did this very well, and he did this sort of in little steps. Exactly. And so there's a couple points to make here. The first mechanism was that Hitler, as this leader, was protected in people's minds, just like psychology has shown that uh, people might protect their abusers. They also protected Hitler in their mind. If there was something they didn't like, the people would commonly say, and this cut across class lines and regional lines, church lines, they would say, Hitler doesn't know about it. They would preserve their image of Hitler as the great bringer of justice. But there were certain things that he just didn't know about. And if he did know about it, he would put it right. There was one myth that some bishop 
talked to a bishop in Rome who talked to Mussolini, and Mussolini talked to Hitler, and then Hitler finally knew, so Hitler made something right. So it's about belief and maintaining belief, how belief becomes important. And people buy into it. It becomes uh, very difficult for them to shake that belief. It can cause a mental crisis. One of these mechanisms of how Hitler moved forward, a very critical one, was that uh, people believed in Hitler and they refused to blame him for anything that was wrong. You saw that when Himmler closed Grafenek, the woman who wrote to him said, this is a weapon like no other. We have to preserve like nothing else this weapon that people believe in Hitler. And if this goes on too long, uh, people will start to question whether it's possible that Hitler doesn't know about this. And this is one of the impacts of Gollum's sermon. Once he was out there saying this, it was obvious that Hitler would have known this. So Hitler immediately called a, a halt decree. Now, another way that Hitler crept forward toward his goals was secrecy. And the paradox of, of secrecy is that it makes protest and disclosure even more powerful. It empowers people, it empowers protest, it empowers dissent, because the regime not only has to protect the program, has to protect the secrecy about it. And uh, the vulnerability there uh, on euthanasia was that the regime wasn't admitting it. So they actually dismissed charges of rumor mongering among, uh, against some people who would have otherwise, if they were rumor mongering about something else that the Nazis didn't want to keep secret, would have been prosecuted and punished. But they were simply let off because, as the uh, justice minister said, when we start to uh, prosecute that, we'll have to talk about euthanasia. We want the people to go to sleep and not to think about it, not to know about it. We don't want to advertise this. So secrecy made their program more vulnerable. Grafenek was closed not because of a mass uh, collection of people on the streets, but because of the aggregate impact of rumors and uh, the horrible impact from the Nazi perspective on morale was that uh, you know they weren't going to put themselves behind national socialism. They weren't going to be able to believe in Hitler and his program. So that was somewhat of a shell game, that Grafenek was closed, but another center was opened. The Nazis always found enough people willing to be executioners, willing to be collaborators, willing to benefit, so that uh, if there were dissenters, uh, you wouldn't necessarily have to throw them into a concentration camp. You could just work around them. Yes, they had uh, many tricks up their sleeve. This week's episode, like last week's episode, is sponsored by The Jordan Harbinger Show. As an interviewer, I'm always on the hunt for new shows to get inspiration from, and Jordan's is a veritable goldmine. Guests run the gamut from CIA spooks to famous athletes, successful business leaders to groundbreaking scientists. What sets Jordan apart is his interview style designed to teach you as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Jordan's show is one of those shows that'll spark your interest even if you've never heard of the guest. If you like Future Hindsight, I think you'll enjoy The Jordan Harbinger Show too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find the show at jordanharbinger.com. 
In what way do you think history is repeating itself today? What do we know from that time that we're seeing again? I guess I would start with belief and the attack on science, simultaneously augmented by the internet and the notion of alternative facts. Enlightenment thought, enlightenment processes, our common language is being attacked. We can't have a discussion with people whose main empiricism is, is belief the more you undermine it, the more they insist that they have to believe. And uh, this is what our president is counting on. He is, however, using the old, mostly Republican strategy of trying to just whip up the base and play only to the base. This has been his tactic since his inaugural address. But people are willing to believe, especially in a time of crisis, especially when they feel scared. And this is uh, why the pandemic normally should help an autocrat. We have some possibility of escaping that if enough Americans can realize that other countries are doing better than we are. And that the strong man who says, only I can fix it, is not the place to turn when you're afraid. But I, I mentioned before the power of belief, the investment people have once they start believing, the difficulty of pulling that prop out in their uh, mental picture of reality. There were people who committed suicide because Hitler did. I remember hearing one person say when when she heard Hitler committed suicide, said, well, what do we do now? How can we possibly go forward? This was a simple way of existing, that there was a strong man who knew how to go forward, and all you had to do was follow. And it's a Christian supposition, and uh, maybe one in religion uh, generally, somewhat still in opposition to the Enlightenment structures for building society. Also, one of the reasons that people continued to fight and uh, die for Hitler to the end was that they didn't have alternatives. They were pretty boxed in by the end ever since uh, Stalingrad in early 1943 and Germany's debacle there in the war. So uh, where else did they have to turn? Certainly, resistance was extraordinarily difficult. The resistors in 1938 in the military were trying to consider how to get rid of Hitler. But the main thing they couldn't agree on that hung them up was Hitler was so popular that if they arrested him and tried to hold a trial, people would be pounding the walls. They would be shaking the bars of the prison. They would demand, give us our fear back. They would kill these people and let Hitler go. So uh, it was a real fascism in Germany. Yes, Hitler really was a master at building this mass movement for himself yes. and the Nazi party. So what do you think is the most common misconception about Hitler and, and specifically about power building, you know, not about him as a human? Right. Well, a couple of things come to mind. I guess the first one is uh, fear and intimidation. Uh, Hitler's always thrown in the same pot with Stalin, and they were very different dictators in style and aims. Also, I would say uh, 
that it's not a misconception, but it takes up too much space to just have moral condemnations of Hitler, say that, you know, he was this raging and foaming at the mouth carpet biter, which he may have been at times. He did it for effect. He was certainly not very well balanced. But on the other hand, he had strategic capacities. Uh, some have allowed that he was good at speaking and that was his only talent. Others have pointed out that he was a good actor. I would point toward his uh, maybe a kind of instinctive capacity for understanding mass psychology, at least as the Germans. He did a, a, a really good job of playing the Fuhrer so that people believed him. The main thing that I have tried to um, address is that Hitler is pictured as if he were born with the Gestapo at his bedside. Where does he get this support? Hitler is an outsider more than you can imagine. He is a nobody. He is among the homeless down and out in Munich and Vienna. And, and he's from Austria. He's not even a German until 1932. This is somebody who is homemade. He's made within the circumstances of Germany, just like uh, Trump has been made within the circumstances of uh, the United States. He appealed to people. And somehow he was able to unite people. And I think his speaking ability was a a big part there, but certainly his acting ability as well, and his orchestration of his appearances. He distanced himself and ruled as an image, not as somebody reading the briefing papers and making decisions, but mostly as this image that everybody could project onto. Imagine all these different cultural pockets in Germany, deep down by the mountains and Catholic villages, up in Prussia and the potato farming flatlands. All of these people somehow agreed that Hitler had in mind the Germany they had in mind. After World War I, that was maybe a simpler uh, objective of just getting Germany back on the world power map. But uh, this was not done with Gestapo force. I think uh, Hitler is very aware of the propaganda value of force, and he liked to use that when possible to show that National Socialism was powerful and provided an alternative, as he said, for workers who were already intimidated by communism and thought they didn't have a choice because they experienced as, as violent. He used coming to power to disrupt the existing system and to show that he could bring order instead of the disorder he was causing. People very much start with the Holocaust, with the occupation, with the war methods where international laws didn't matter, really whether gave Germany dominance is all that mattered. But these were not the tactics that Hitler used within the Reich among his own people. This is probably, I guess, getting close to the main misconception that people read backwards from the Holocaust, which is why we study Hitler, to uh, say that the brutality was bottomless. And certainly the willingness to do that was, but Hitler didn't always think that the brutality or repression would get him what he wanted. So he worked with a whole variety of tactics within the Reich. The people within Germany were the main resource that Hitler was trying to use, actually forming them into this Volksgemeinschaft, this community of Germans who all were on the same page of National Socialism. So Hitler had to use a variety of techniques. After cutting off opposition with 
Gestapo force to be sure. There weren't alternatives opening up. The parties were shut down. But then Hitler was concerned with making people happy with National Socialism. One of the psychological reasons, apparently, that Hitler wanted popularity, apparently he's really happy up there. We have these pictures of him just streaming with pleasure and smiles as uh, acres and acres of people spread out before him and applaud. And he was susceptible to that as well, I believe. Yes, I think that's a very difficult thing to resist for any human, <laughs> to be fair. This is why rock stars love yes. being rock stars. <laughs> it's a deeply human thing to love to be admired. <laughs> that's why I'm interested in national socialism. I'm interested in human behavior. I'm not interested in condemning the Germans or uh, finding a specific kind of bias. I always uh, you know, have objected, as long as I remember, uh, to calling these things inhuman because it's precisely humans who carried out the Holocaust and could do it again. I know we've been talking about history, of course, but I have a question about the future. So here it goes. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? I think that talking about the future is very fraught. It's not surprising that it's precisely what the Trump administration is trying to crush. That is the mobilization from the bottom of of protests, of concern with racial equity, of concern with conversation, of uh, concern with what Hannah Arendt called thinking together. Each of us has a part of the picture and we need to be in conversation rather than trusting a strong man, certainly for a democracy. So more than anything else, these protests, the Black Lives Matter and the protests for all causes of individual freedoms and a uh, democratic society is by far the most hopeful sign that I've seen recently. That's terrific. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight. Okay, you're welcome, Mila. In my mind, this episode about uncovering what it took for Hitler to build a mass movement is so valuable. It took him years of building popularity, dishing out lies and obfuscation, deceiving the people about his real purpose to radically change normative behavior, selective brutality, and strategically managing opposition and protest, and most importantly, it took him many years to carefully hone a public persona of mythical proportions. It's the cultivation of an unshakable belief in him as a Führer that made him so successful in propagating Nazi ideology. The most encouraging takeaway was that public protest, open dissent during the Third Reich, was more powerful than the free press. And that's still true today. Though our democracy appears to be in danger of collapsing, the fact that we are in a moment of mass protest gives me immense hope that we will vote out the would-be autocrat in the White House. If you want to hear more from our conversation about the history and power of protest during the Nazi regime, come check out our bonus Civics Club content on Patreon. Nathan tells us about protests by Catholics and Protestants who resisted Nazi ideology, which sought to supersede Christianity as a belief system. We also talk about the Rosenstrasse protests by German women who were married to Jewish men. Join us at patreon.com 
forward slash future hindsight. Our next guest is Devlin Barrett. He's a Washington Post reporter focusing on national security and law enforcement and writes about the FBI and the Justice Department. He's also the author of October's Surprise, How the FBI Tried to Save Itself and Crashed an Election. I don't really feel like people have any obligation to spend the rest of their lives trapped in 2016. But I do hope that people come away when the dust settles on this election with a better understanding of maybe some of the pitfalls in terms of not just the politics of the world, but conspiracy theories and how ideas that are attractive to you may just not be true. And we need to approach everything in life with healthy skepticism. In a lot of ways in 2016, what you see is people can't distinguish facts from conspiracy theories. And that creates real problems in the real world. As we approach Election Day 2020, in the midst of an already turbulent October, our conversation will be a reminder that the FBI served the American public an unintended October surprise in 2016, an event from which Hillary Clinton did not have the time and space to recover. We examine the role of the Bureau's culture, hubris, and institutional breakdown that brought about this chain of events. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts, futurehindsight.com, or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.